evening, my sparkly friends. Happy Wednesday slash Thursday, because we're in between the two. Is it Wednesday? Is it Thursday? Guess it's up to you to decide, right? <laughs> Alright, well, for this disability news, I didn't even think I was going to do this broadcast because I've been feeling kind of crappy the last couple days. We're going to do something a little bit different. I have been thinking a lot about racism in the disability community. And I'm sure if you're a black or brown person who is disabled, you have been too. Because a lot of activists are white. And as I was talking about earlier, if you saw my, my video live, there are a lot of problematic things going on. However, as time goes by, I feel like this can never be addressed enough. So I want to frame the issue in some pieces that are a bit older. One is from 2016, and the other, uh, it's kind of, uh, I, I want to say it's, well, it's half and half. One, it's from 2015, and it's also, um, yeah, you'll see in a second. <laughs> we'll say it's mixed, mixed dates. Because to go forward, be in our moment, in our present, and to go forward into our future, we have to learn from the past, right? We can't forget about things that have happened. It seems to me, especially now, our, our memory, as in like a, like a computer memory, right? Is getting smaller and smaller. We're becoming more blind to the past. Where some of us are shielding ourselves from it. We're shielding ourselves from a lot. Very purposefully. It's damaging. It's damaging to a lot of people. It, it becomes increasingly difficult to interact with the people that I have to interact with on a personal and professional basis. We're told that we have to keep quiet, to smile, and it feels very bad. You know, there are these people in positions of power over you, and they're treated well, but they can treat you very poorly, and, and treat your friends poorly, and you just have to deal with it. And then they tell you, well, that's just the way of the world, but that's not the way of their world. And if they ever had a taste of ours, you know they'd be asking for managers, you know? So, we're going to talk about racism in the disability community. It's, it's one of, of many issues. We need to start deconstructing it in order to make real change. Another issue that I'd like to bring up in the future, very soon, that we got into a little bit earlier, is how able people seem to be running 
most disability businesses and events. I had an interaction, you can see on my wall a bit down below, with a company who, while they're doing interesting things, I, I don't appreciate their marketing. And uh, maybe I'm burning some bridges here, but honestly, I'd like to extend an olive branch if at all possible, they're called A-Linker, and they have this product that's kind of like a bike, but you don't pedal, you use their feet. A person uses their feet to operate it. And in their ad, they write something to the effect of, for people of all abilities, and it doesn't matter what challenges you have, you can use this. I have screenshots of this. And that really disappointed me. Because even when I saw the product before and I thought it was alright, I knew that I couldn't use it. But I'm like, oh hey, well that will help some people who have issues pedaling. But then I saw that and I thought, well, here's another thing. In any event, my interaction with them was very poor. I brought up the criticism and, you know, they were very closed off to seeing how that could be an ableist notion. In any event, we have two articles today that talk about racism in the disability community. One is from the American Association of People with Disabilities. And the other is from a blog written by Lydia XZ Brown. I'm trying to, it's called Autistic, I believe uh, this, the Latina in me wants to say Autistic Oya, but it could be pronounced Oya, not, pos not positive. First, a little bit about the AAPD, well, so, the second article is entitled, since we're going to get to it a little bit later, it's entitled, Undoing Racism and Anti-Blackness in Disability Justice. And I will tell you a little bit more about Lydia once we get to that article, so it's fresh in your mind. But first, let's talk about, if you don't know about them, the American Association of People with Disabilities. Their about page states that they are a convener, connector, and catalyst for change, increasing the political and economic power of people with disabilities. Under convener, Justin Dart, father of ADA and one of the founders of AAPD, often called for solidarity among all who love justice and equality. The disability community is massive and incredibly diverse as a convener AAPD is a cross-disability organization that builds trust and unity through open and honest conversations. When we stand in solidarity on any issue, we have the power to create lasting change. Connector, disability is a natural part of the human experience that influences all. As a connector, AAPD is a bridge that joins the disability community with their friends, adversaries, family, businesses, schools, and the community at large, amplifying a powerful voice for change. Catalysts. Like champions of justice before us have proven seemingly underestimated actions lead to significant transformation. As a catalyst, AAPD is action-oriented, 
building chain reactions that increase the rate and speed of change. A small spark can ignite extraordinary results, and it shows their staff, which is majority white. Um, there seem to be two people of color on the staff out of seven. Hmm. But they do have a, at least their main staff, I don't know if that's like a board or whatnot. There is um, this article that seems very impressive about racism and ableism. Written in November of 2016 by an Isabella Cress Nash. This is here that Isabella Cress Nash was a 2016 AAPD summer intern who interned with Senator Patty Murray, DWA, in the Senate Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions, which is called HELP Committee. Committee. She is currently a junior at Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island, studying political science and history. This one really unpacks a lot, so get yourself comfortable. I'm going to drink a little bit of water before we get started. Okay, here we go. Racism and ableism are often thought of as parallel systems of oppression that work separately to perpetuate social hierarchy. Not only does this way of looking at the world ignore the experiences of people of color with disabilities, but it also fails to examine how race is pathologized in order to create racism, meaning that society treats people of color in specific ways to create barriers, and these poor conditions create disability. The concept of disability has been used to justify discrimination against other groups by attributing disability to them. There are countless examples across history of black and brown bodies being pathologized in order to perpetuate white supremacy. And although there are examples of this across race, this piece will focus on the experiences of black people. An analysis of how black bodies have been pathologized in this country should begin with American slavery. The existence of the economic system of slavery relied on the social idea that African Americans lack sufficient intelligence to participate or compete on an equal basis in society with white Americans. This idea was confirmed with the creation of several diseases specific to black people. Drapetomania, for example, was a condition that caused slaves to run away from, in quotes, as much of as much a disease of the mind as any other species of mental alienation." End quote. Similarly, dysesthesia, achiopis, a unique ailment differing from, in quotes, from every other species of mental disease as it is accompanied with physical signs or lesions of the body, end quote, resulted in a desire to avoid work and generally to cause mischief. Obviously full of racism. These are only two examples of disability being created by people in power in order to preserve social order. And yet they are foundational. Not only have specific disabilities been created to facilitate racism, 
but this ability has also been used to punish those who seek to dismantle it. One historic example this comes from comes uh, one historic example of this comes from the island of Malaga, Maine. Prior to 1912, the island was settled by both white and black families who lived together in peace. In 1912, however, the governor evicted all 45 families from Malaga Island. The residents of this racially mixed community were said to be feeble-minded and many were sent to Maine School for the feeble-minded in Pownal, Maine. The state-sponsored removal of the Malaga residents illustrates how disability is used to justify institutional racism. The deliberate connection of miscegenation and feeble-mindedness in Malaga allowed the state to maintain the status quo. Time and time again, society has been quick to call out disability in communities of color while simultaneously failing to acknowledge that the state is directly responsible for the very environments that have created staggering numbers of disability. Institutional racism has cut, um, has cut off those communities from resources so that disability cannot be recognized. This is why mental illness, for example, is particularly common among community of colors. African Americans are diagnosed with schizophrenia in much higher rates and are also given antipsychotic medications more frequently and in higher doses. They are also more often institutionalized involuntarily, in part because racial stereotypes affect psychiatrists' assessments of their, in quote, dangerousness. This phenomenon illustrates why medical models of disability is inadequate. Only social stereotypes can explain why black bodies are pathologized in such extreme ways. Continuing with an examination of the same mental illness, a 1993 study found that 79% of African Americans in a public sector hospital were diagnosed with schizophrenia compared with 43% of whites. Given some of the previous historical examples of black people pathologized, it is logical to infer that these levels of schizophrenia diagnoses might further institutional racism. The use of racial stereotypes to inform diagnosis has had a profound impact on the lives of people of color. So a quick commentary. This is very multifaceted. So not only has institutional racism created disability when it isn't there to serve a racist agenda, it won't recognize real disability. It won't provide the resources to assist the disabled. That's two. And then three, because of extreme racist ideologies, um, ideas about what people of color are, like, um, in, in quotes, like how, how people feel that, you know, black bodies are aggressive, they place diagnoses on them that might not apply or exacerbate situations because those numbers are extreme absolutely extreme black brains and white brains aren't chemically different 
That's not science. And that, that is an absolute demonstration of institutional racism. Moving forward. To summarize, institutional racism has pathologized brown bodies in order to maintain the status quo while simultaneously failing to acknowledge that the state is responsible for creating environments where disability is inevitable. As a result, ableism will always exist if racism exists because it is a tool of racism. Creating societal barriers for people of color creates disability. It's going to repeat that sentence. As a result, ableism will always exist if racism exists because it is a tool of racism. Creating societal barriers for people of color creates disability. That's really powerful. The social model of disability that the disability community is embracing by definition includes people of color. And yet the disability community is not inclusive of the struggles of people of color. It's absolutely mind boggling. Understanding the connection between these two systems of oppression should unite the disability and people of color communities, and yet little is known about this history. This does negate the experiences of people of color with disabilities, as there are many, myself included, says the author, who identify as both a person of color and a person with a disability. It is true, however, that both these communities' movements for civil rights have existed in primarily separate spheres. Understanding the historical connection between racism and ableism should never lead to a connected effort to disable these systems of oppression. I'm sorry, there was not a never there, let me repeat that. Understanding the historical connection between racism and ableism should lead to a connected effort to disable these systems of oppression. So the author is saying that by mutually understanding each other's histories, we should be able to work together better, not become more disparate. The ultimate goal of meaningful inclusion for the disability community will never be fully realized until black and brown people are also free. And that, that's, that is the end of the essay. And um, what I think is the most important statement here. And what I feel also is, I just, it's in this sentence one more time. Because this is what it comes down to. And maybe this is going to be a hard no pun intended, pill for disabled people to swallow. But we need to realize this. As a result, ableism will always exist if racism exists because it is a tool of racism. Creating societal barriers for people of color creates disability.
our lives as disabled people are incredibly difficult. No one's negating that. But there are still privileges that you're going to have if you are a white disabled person. You might have an easier time going through life as a white disabled person than a black able person. It's difficult to compare. You don't really know. But the system of institutional racism is deep. And personally, I feel that if we dismantled racism, our belief about all differences would be deconstructed. You know, that would be the seed. That's where it starts. We need to work towards that first. We need to work together. Pardon my long pauses. It takes me a little bit of time to collect my thoughts between what I'm going to say because I want it to be meaningful and I like to avoid vocal tics that I have saying you know and and a lot. I know what I say might be very difficult for people to listen to and I might not have enjoyed things that I say now years ago because I was so stuck in my own struggle. Uh, but it's important, I think, for us to realize that other people have it harder than we do. And if we want, you know, better for ourselves, better for everyone, cooperation is important. That doesn't mean that, well, rephrase, it's in, in general, it's a two-way street. Mutual validity. So next, we're going to talk about this article, Another Perspective, from AutisticHoya.com. And I'd like to tell you a little bit about this author. Her name again is Lydia X. Z. Brown. There's a photo of Lydia. And the caption is, Young East Asian person outside craning their neck upward at a tree with brilliant orange-red leaves in the autumn. Boston, Massachusetts, Fall 2015. This is their mini biography. I'm a writer, dreamer, activist slash organizer, and speaker slash educator. Some of the many marginal identities slash experiences I hold are that I'm autistic and multiply otherwise neurodivergent and disabled, queer, asexual spectrum, genderqueer slash non-binary, and sometimes rate as feminine, and transracially slash transnationally adopted East Asian person of color from China, in parentheses, into white adoptive family. To clarify for this author, I believe this was before any of the stuff with that person who was pretending to be black. This person is actually East Asian, adopted into a white family, so they have a very um, 
interesting cultural experience. I'm also working to examine and challenge the privilege and power I hold as someone raised with middle and upper middle class money privilege, a US citizen and native English speaker, fairly light-skinned and mostly able-bodied as hearing, sighted, and walking. Raised in a deeply religious and engaged Christian community, educated in private college and now in law school. I do a lot of varied work in grassroots organizing, public policy advocacy, and writing focus on disability justice, intersectionality, and activism. They give a link to their bio, a different bio, their professional one. Right now, I'm the chairperson of the Massachusetts Developmental Disabilities Council, which makes me seem a lot more professional than I probably am. <laughs> While suffering through a special hell known generally to the public law school, known generally to the public as law school, <laughs> which is definitely a privilege that I'm here, but doesn't make it suck less, and pulling together the first ever anthology by autistics of color. There's a link. Ooh, I'm very interested with E. Ashkenazi and Morenaiki Giwa Oinayu at the Autism Women's Network. Oh yeah, Autism Women's Network is a really great group. I've worked with a lot of other orgs in the past, and actually still do, but also do a shit ton of work outside of those formal channels. And there's an asterisk above that. I care about intersectional social justice because I believe absolutely that justice must be for everyone, not just us. And just because most people ask, the blog name, Autistic Koya, comes from where I went to college, where the students, athletes, alumni are known as Hoyas. <laughs> Blame a bunch of Latin slash Greek nerds. Also, there's a link to that. There's a lot of links here. I won't keep mentioning it, but if you check out their bio, you can take a look. Outside my work in radical disability justice and disability policy, I write literary fiction and do text-based roleplay slash collaborative writing. I am particularly fond of making my characters' lives suck, <laughs> and in fact, I teach crash courses on how to make right angst, grimdark, and bleak with a character-driven bent. <laughs> This person's really funny. I'm also very much interested in and passionate about Sufi music and Ethiopian, Ethiopian food. I'm very proud to have a fantastic partner, Shane M. Neumeyer, a fellow autistic activist slash attorney who blogs at Silence Breaking Sound and is mostly known in autistic neurodiversity community for their work at the intersection of youth, disability, and queer trans rights justice. You can learn pretty much everything else you need to know about me and Shane from this video that they link to. Complete visual and audio transcription in the description. Though my family, both chosen and of origin, through my family, they say. I'm sorry, not though my family. Through my family, I am the occasional human companion to a number of kitties and doges who are all amazing floofs and flufflumps. Then at the end, they give their contact information if you're interested in it. They seem pretty, pretty cool. Okay, so now you know how to find them on to and we're going to start into their article. 
and on the 14th of April in 2015, although very, very relevant right now, again entitled Undoing Racism and Anti-Blackness in Disability Justice. And there's a content slash trigger warning for anti-blackness, racism, police brutality, ableism, and descriptions of violence. So, if you need to step away, please do so. And know that this will be posted in the usual places later if um, you feel you might be more prepared later to listen. Here we go. The post below the picture slash fold appeared in shortened form as tackling ableism and racism in the criminal justice system in the Independence Center of Northern Virginia's April 2015 newsletter for a special issue on intersectionality. In the wake of the unfolding catastrophe with Caleb Moon Robinson, an 11-year-old black autistic student from Virginia convicted of virtually fabricated felony charges for an incident stemming from kicking a trash can and now facing potential time in juvenile detention, it seems especially relevant to share in its full original version with one small correction. Not only Virginia, but nationally, we face a continued crisis of centuries of surveillance and policing of racial, racialized bodies. Indigenous, Black, Latinx, and Brown people have always been the target of state violence and the violence of structural racism. When combined with ableism, those at the intersections live in fear of constant violence without any hope of justice. It's a long past time that our movements, our organizations, and our activists in the disability community start addressing our replication of white-centric structures and start challenging racism and anti-blackness in particular. They link to a petition for Caleb and the ASAN statement on his case. There's a photo of Caleb, a young black kid with glasses, wearing a gray hoodie standing outside in a snowy driveway. Now below, I believe, is the reproduction of the original article. I'm not sure if this is what the author wrote or if it's the reproduction, but we're going to go ahead and read it. In February 2010, a passerby saw a young black man outside of a middle school library in Virginia and called the police to report a suspicious black male, possibly armed. After the police arrived, an officer approached him, demanding identification. The young man outside the library appeared obviously agitated and distressed, and attempted to walk away calmly several times. By the end of the encounter, 18-year-old Reginald Nailey Latson and the officer had a violent altercation, and Nailey was facing over 10 years in prison for the crime of going to the library while black and autistic. In 2009, Two police officers approached a young South Asian man sleeping on the sidewalk. One officer claimed the young man pulled out a knife, which his partner later denied ever occurred. The officer fired four shots, murdering Mohammed Usman Shadri for the crime of sleeping outdoors while brown and autistic. The Internal Affairs Review of the shooting found the use of lethal force had been within the scope of the department policy. Over the past six years, however, the larger autistic rights organizations led by autistic people have only occasionally addressed police brutality against disabled people.
Jeez. That's messed up. Only recently have our organizations issued public statements in such cases, demanding real justice for members of our community impacted by the violence of our criminal injustice system. It's no coincidence that mostly that most disability rights organizations, with relatively few exceptions, are led entirely by or mostly led entirely or mostly by white people with disabilities. Sorry about that, that's my watch in the background. While police brutality certainly impacts white disabled people, such as 11-year-old Emily Holcomb, arrested and removed from her school in handcuffs after defending herself against violent physical restraint, disabled people of color are particularly vulnerable to state violence. Many activists within the autistic community will describe ignorance born of ableism as the root cause for police violence against autistic and other disabled people. They will urge better outreach to police and prosecutors and training on developmental disabilities as the solutions. Yet, they will rarely, if ever, acknowledge the equally insidious impact of structural racism, not merely on which of us are the most vulnerable, but also on how our community responds. Police, returning, police training is important and useful, but no amount of awareness training will erase unconscious ableism and racism. Outreach can lead to better outcomes for some, but those of us who experience multiple layers of marginality cannot rely on police as an institution to protect or serve us. Before they hear our presentation on respectful interaction with autistic people, they see black and brown faces and project racialized criminality onto neurodivergent bodies marked doubly by race and disability. This is what intersectionality means. To practice social justice in ways that grapple with the complex impacts of multiple systems of structural oppression or system systemic injustice, if you will. For those of us who are non-black autistic activists, that means recognizing that behavioral compliance, indistinguishability, and conditionally passing as neurotypical can be tools of survival for black autistic people. Resistance to arbitrary norms of abled and neurotypical existence can take multiple forms. Survival and resilience can mean navigating complicated tension between out and proud autistic existence and safety from racialized violence. Intersectionality demands complexity without easy answers or simple slogans because the real lives of everyone in the movement are infinitely more complicated than the single issue politics can recognize. Intersectionality requires thoughtful organizing and intense labor if we truly seek to build more just and equitable communities. I hope that gives you something to think about. I don't have too much to follow up with because it was both pieces were just so poignant. I know it's not something that's going to be accomplished overnight. I don't think all of the very loud white disability activists who are doing the most problematic things are going to hear this and say, ah, yes. I see what I'm doing wrong, and I'm going to stop doing that now. <laughs> no, that's not going to happen. 
I I used to be a lot more naive and think that the work that I would do would have a very direct impact on the present. And now I realize that, well, not only quite a small voice, but um, I had a conversation with um, a friend or acquaintance recently who is a, I have some things in common with. And uh, we're talking about sort of the hopelessness of it all. And how sometimes we wonder, you know, why am I doing this? Is it worth it? And uh, they made this, this really good point. How they feel like they're setting a foundation so that generations from now things could be a lot better. And gosh, that that really made a difference for me. And perhaps all the work indeed that we're doing now, generations from now, so that our kids or our kids' kids will have a much more idyllic or idealistic future. Because it sure does suck currently. It really does. I can't believe... I mean, I can, I can believe I, I do, but I hate it. The way that white people treat brown people and black people, it is so gross. It's one of those things that you just don't get used to. Within our brown communities, all the internalized racism and how brown people treat other brown people... And it's just too broken right now. Like, I know it's too broken for us to see much real change. So, for for those of you who are having similar feelings and frustrations and you just feel so helpless and you're just grasping at straws and focus on self-care I know that's sort of like a you know it's become that hot word right now but compartmentalize I'd say compartmentalize do your activism and then just separate yourself from it like live your life make a TV dinner I don't know order a pizza and be in a bus or a car and look out the window and just try try feeling like a part of the world when you can. However you need to. Like, just go to a mall and look at the people if you can get out of the house. Things that make you feel involved. Anything. Because sometimes you feel like you're swimming. And then you, you start to drown. We're all just individuals, right? We can't single-handedly solve all of the world's problems. I think all the people on the earth couldn't solve all the world's problems in a lifetime. You know why? Because generations of people have created them. We've got a debt 
we've got problem dead. It's gonna take some handling and some healing. If we pick at it, it's gonna get infected. As much as we need to be kind to other people, we also need to be kind to ourselves. Because you don't want to let those wounds inside fester. You gotta let ourselves heal too as the world heals. That's how it's gonna happen. A little bit of a different disability news today, but that's the kind of mood that I'm in. I hope it was worthwhile for you to listen to. Sending you lots of love and light. And we will have a Saturday morning cartoons for you on Saturday. Also, don't forget about Abilities Expo coming up at the Renaissance Schomburg, June 23rd through the 25th. I will be there. Visit abilities.com to check out all the details. It'll be a great time. It's a free event. You just have to find parking, pay for parking, um, pay for public transportation, but the event itself is free. It's going to be a great time. I promise you that. Happy Pride! There's so many things going on for Pride. I hope you have so much fun. If you uh, need someone to chat to, send me a message on Facebook. Make sure you take your medication today. Make sure you eat. And if you have a cat or dog, give them a pet for me. (laughs) Make good with your ability today. Bye-bye. As I leave you today, take some time to relax and listen to this soothing music from the royalty-free YouTube music library. This one is entitled 49th Street Galleria by Chris Zabriskie. I hope you can get some rest and enjoy your weekend. Bye-bye.